My daughter called me before from school. She was in the bathroom and um, two little kids from another division were in there. She said they were like five years old (laughs) and she was listening to them have a conversation. And the one girl said, what's your dad's name? And the girl said something like, you know, Jeff. She's like, what's your dad's name? The girl said, it's dad. Duh. (laughs) That's cute. I love children. We have a lot of holiday stuff going on here. First off, there is still a discount running through the end of the year. The discount code is Milton23. Now, where can they put that code in? Any website. Anyone. Yeah. Amazon. Yep. Try Just try it. Nordstrom. I'm not going to stop you. Yeah. Um, if you add products to your cart, when you get to the little generic Shopify checkout page that every website has these days, at the top, they sort of hide it. It's annoying. At the top, there will be a drop down that says promo code. You have to click that. Mm. So make sure you do it because it's not going to automatically apply because I don't know why ours doesn't do that. And what do the people get? Uh, you get 10% off all items in the shop. A hat? A hat. Coffee? Coffee. Coffee sampler? Sampler. A hoodie? Yep. Are there any new items in the shop? Yes, I had a a burst of inspiration, aka something I've been meaning to do for two years, and I made a little holiday collection just this morning. (laughs) I've already ordered the sweater. Is that true? (laughs) Yes. Wow, you're Mm -hmm. dedicated. Yes. Well, which one? There's two sweaters. The fuck Milton Friedman Christmas sweater. Well, so they're holiday sweaters. They are non-denominational holiday sweaters. Yes, they follow a typical ugly sweater Christmas pattern. I'll be wearing it on Christmas, so I'm going to call it my Christmas sweater. You were allowed to call it your Christmas sweater. But it is a holiday sweater. Yes, it's a holiday sweater. I made them. It's not like the colors are kind of fun. They're like a blue and a reddish pink, so it's not. It's it, It's got a little bit of everything, not traditional red and green for, for all y'all. Hebrews <laughs> and my Hebrews. Shebrews. Yeah. That's what my friend always says. Shebrews. Shebrews. Um, and also non-holiday people and other holidays and other religions that all of them. I'm not going to name all religions as we've gone through. There's 7,000 million of them. That's right. I'm not going to do a good job. Um, but yeah, there's a fuck Milton Friedman <laughs> and there is a UNFTR generic. And then uh, you can get that on a crew neck, okay. a long sleeve shirt Ooh. or a mug. Awesome. I tried to put on a hat, but because it's like the fake embroidery print, mm-hmm. I th- the, it looked all fucked up. So I think it would come out because it'd be like trying to embroider embroidery. So the hat's a no-go. But just buy a regular hat for the winter. And then Get a can, sweater. Yeah. Get a holiday sweater. Yeah. They're really fun. I'm, I'm excited about it. I love that. Thank you. You're welcome. For doing that. And if anyone has any suggestions, you know, if you want to see it on like a... I don't know, uh, anything, let me know. If you're like, hey, I really want this on like a thong, I'll mm. see what I can do. Okay. And also get your orders in quick because yes. we are not responsible for the ship times with the merch because it is a third party. It makes it scalable for us. So it should, I'm going to say there's a minimum, let's say a week lead time. Like give it a week. So just remember to hit that drop down when you get into the store at unftr.com, go into the shop, and enter code MILTON23 
for your 10% discount. And, you know, nothing says I love you at the holidays like a coffee sampler. Just putting it out there. I think it's one of the the most lovely things that you could do. So we are not going to do headlines. We're going to save those for the newsletter because we did not do show notes for Thanksgiving. And we actually have not two, but three episodes of feedback to get through. And we've got a lot of really thoughtful feedback, as one might imagine, from the topic that we've been covering. So uh, as far as this weekend, by the way, we have a quickie coming up which is uh, taking, dialing it back a little bit on the seriousness, but, you know, kind of uh, kind of peering into the 2024 political world. So make sure you check that out and, uh, and we'll have a little fun in it as well. So now getting into the episode feedback, we're going to start off with a, a wonderful email from Video Eng Alex, who said, I don't have words to describe the epilogue. I need to see some artisan carve excellent into stone and drop it from a decent height onto your desk to get the point across. Excellent. There's one thing that's really been bothering me, though, from coverage on both sides that I wish would be addressed. It's always a number of killed and injured that is presented, and maybe this is just the way I read it, but the injured number always seems like an afterthought, like not a big deal. They'll be fine. What I think should be addressed is that a lot of these people in the injured category may well die anyway and or have lifelong debilitating injuries that will make any attempt at adjusting to whatever their future holds incredibly difficult. Some of them may well require lifelong care that they'll never be able to afford. Anyway, it's only somewhere around 40,000 souls, which I'm sure they can find and care for, what with the abundance of hospitals. It just feels overlooked to me. Curious if that's my internal biases or if you agree. Yeah, one of the figures that stuck out to me was that turning point that we identified in part three that I asked Professor Khalidi about, which was the assault on Beirut and how the numbers just kept adjusting up and that people did die subsequently from injuries or were discovered beneath the rubble rubble, and uh, the, the death toll t- was tremendous. And they took great care to report the injured from that because... The infrastructure was so bombed out in Lebanon at that time, and it was a different time and place. So you can uh, you can imagine that the recovery from that. Well, I don't think they've actually ever fully recovered from that. Growing up, I think the reason that I keyed in on that as such a turning point was that Beirut was almost a punchline in the United States because this is during the Reagan era. And it was during that post-Carter, let's just lay everybody in the middle of Middle East to waste because we don't understand it and we don't want to, you know, we're, we're tired of being in the mix there. The hostage crisis was still fresh. We were just dealing with the the rise of uh, Islamic states, fundamentalist states, the hard right turn uh, in the Muslim world and in a lot of the theocracies that emerged from that period. And I feel like that was a turning point for a lot of reasons. And that incident happened to be particularly brutal. And it was not just with the full diplomatic cover and support of the United States, but it was also with uh, with our troops that we committed to it. And it was particularly horrific because it was technically unprovoked. But the, the backdrop for that, and I think the reason that that was a turning point, is that it, it, it marked this period in uh, Israeli politics with the, the growth of the Likud party and the, and the far right turn that basically set down like if you kill one we kill 20 
If you injure one, we injure 20. If you take somebody hostage, we'll take 10 hostage. And that's sort of been pervasive. And you see what that gets you is sort of this line in the sand where there's really no coming back from it. And I think that that was the period that uh, that they were training their uh, non-allies in the region to, you know, basically don't fuck with us. And you can see how that's really kind of captivating and sexy as somebody who's in that in that area. If you're Israeli and you're born there, you grow up there, this is your life, you're very proud of your heritage, you're proud of the fight of your, your ancestors to find a homeland and you're, you're growing up there to be secure and you have people attacking you that you you sort of get your, your defenses up. We're no different. So one of the things that I don't think I did a really good job with in the series yet, and there may be more follow-up to this as we get more people to commit to phone of friends in the future and as this conflict goes on, is talking about the Israeli perspective through an American lens, because I feel like the people who are pro-Palestine, of which I'm one of them, I am pro-Palestinian state, I'm pro-Palestinian security, I'm pro-Palestinian life, but I tried to, I think I did a better job explaining why it's also important to be pro-Israel uh, and for everybody to have a, have a place in that region where they can feel safe and secure. And I think that's why the part one was purposely done to, to do that justice. But the idea of, of having this bloodlust, the bloodlust that I talked about, you know, that I personally had at, after 9-11, when pro-Palestine Americans just brush aside all of the sentiments in Israel for having a settled state, we have to be able to also kind of see ourselves clearly in this because there, I think there are a lot of people that are new to this particular cause that are just sort of like demonizing the whole of Israel and the Israelis for having no, no right to be there and certainly for their behavior uh, and the atrocities that are being committed in their name. And not a lot of self-reflection in America about the atrocities that we've committed around the world. And I think I could have done a better job saying, you know, we spend a, we're spending a lot of energy right now because it is certainly the conflict of the moment, criticizing Israel's response. I'm very critical of it. I think it's it is leaning toward genocide. It is horrific that I think the UN just the UN just clarified that so far 8,500 children are dead in Gaza. That is a that is an unrecoverable number. We have we have now resigned ourselves to decades of conflict in the name of this response. And it is going to be the undoing of the security of the state of Israel. And it will be ultimately, I believe, the undoing of the Palestinian people. This is this is not going to end well, and it's just going to keep going on. But, you know, I'd love to see us sort of have a moment of reflection in the United States for the absolute bloodlust that we possess when we do this in other places. We shouldn't be over the fact that we massacre 500,000 Iraqis. I mean, we should never get over that fact. You know, I, my friend uh, John Kane reached out to me and uh, w was talking about the issue of genocide and talking about definitions and we were having a, a chat back and forth. And, uh, you know, he was going point by point through the definition of ethnic cleansing and into a genocide and, you know, prevent, you know preventing births and 
checking all five of those boxes of, of what would, would constitute genocide, you know, we don't remember very clearly and we don't bring it out all that often that we committed genocide uh, in the name of expansion and imperialism when we wiped out native colonies in the, in the United States. We did it in Iraq. We did it in so many other parts of the world. There was a piece I saw recently about how we disrupted the last, uh, the only socialist attempt in Grenada in uh, the 1980s as well. We have been so brutal and participated in funding with certainly weapons and arms and also money, uh, the annihilation of, of citizens all around the world. And that never leads to the public outcry. So it's, it's just, I don't even know exactly what I'm trying to say, except that, you know, we, we don't really have a great moral high ground in this country to be able to uh, speak about what happens in other parts of the world. But I, I surely hope that, well, I think that we're going to get our comeuppance uh, as Democrats come the next election cycle. I don't think that people are going to forget so easily that not only did we not try to intervene with a hard line in the sand that all conflict stops now, but that we have aided and, and abetted uh, an effort in, in Palestine to basically obliterate one significant portion of it, which is which is Gaza. Anyway, I don't know. Alex, I'm sort of like working out my own shit here from doing this series in responding to this initial question, and I'm sure more of it will come out, but it, it tortured me to put it together uh, as it should, because this is really difficult stuff. We do need to contemplate the injured, the people that have been disfigured, all the children that are still beneath rubble that uh, haven't been counted yet, the emotional trauma. I mean, you've seen so many families talk about and, and mainstream media has explored this on the Israeli side, talking about the emotional trauma of losing members, the four-year-old little American girl that came back and she's got siblings here, but both of her parents were killed by Hamas. You know, we've been able to tease out a lot of those anecdotes, but we haven't really teased out a lot of the other anecdotes of the emotional, generational trauma that will occur by people that have had literally their entire families murdered. You know, and in in the name of real estate, and it's just it's also it's also fucking tragic. Anyway, um, thank you, Video Angelix, for uh, the kind words and also the insightful question. Then we heard from Sherman Dreadnought, who said, "Another masterpiece, my friends." At first, I was a little unnerved at some of the takes I heard in the show leading up to the series. It seemed a little callous, but I know how this pod operates, and in true UNFTR fashion, you have surpassed my expectations and helped me conceptualize the entirety of this conflict through information, historical content, and of course, critical thinking. In speaking with a friend of mine, he told me a possible, region, a possible reason Egypt won't take refugees. And then in parentheses, follow the money. And then a link to a page about the Ben-Gurion Canal project. So the Ben-Gurion Canal would render the Suez obsolete. In my opinion, neither the Egyptians or Israelis really care about the Palestinians in Gaza. They are just in the way. There are pawns in a global trade route chess game. Egypt wants bodies there to keep Israel from bulldozing a canal, and Israel wants to take money from the Suez. I'm curious as to your thoughts on this, and again, thank you for everything you do. Uh, Sherman, thank you for that. I, I do have thoughts on this. This is reminiscent of the a lot of the WMD story from the, the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. And a lot of the subtext there, um, there were there were people trying to tie uh, huge infrastructure planning that was on the table by the U.S. government in that region that would do something very similar to what you're suggesting with the Ben Gurion Canal. 
There were plans that were drawn up. They were never seriously uh, looking to execute on them. I think when we play geopolitical games, they are for oil, they are for resources, and we have an idea that we really understand the region and that we're sort of, well, actually, you know what? A really good friend of mine uh, is an older gentleman who worked for the government years ago and uh, suggested to me once, he said, let me let me give you some real politique about the American foreign policy and doing air quotes and foreign policy. What What does that really mean? especially with respect to the Middle East. And he said, you know, we, for better, for worse, have created a situation where we instill constant tension among imperial outposts that were never naturally constructed. And I think that really actually informed a lot of my understanding of, you know, how imperialism worked in this region and how it was how it was crafted from the get-go to basically set up for failure. But since we inherited that after World War II as the hegemonic power in the world, we didn't do much to unravel what was done at a time when unraveling it probably would have been good and we should have been seriously considering being supportive of pan-Arab nationalism, but also carving out boundaries for a, a Jewish state that could have been more democratic from the get-go instead of an ethnic national state. The uh, fact that we could have been more sensitive to the divide between uh, Sunni and Shia states, all those kind of things. But what he said was, from the post-World War II up until 9-11, when things came back to really haunt us and change the nature of how we, you know, characterize quote-unquote terrorism in the world, can you really argue with 50 years of success in keeping conflict away from the United States? Meaning, if people blow each other up in other parts of the world, but it never comes back to haunt us here, is that a bad policy? And that's diplomatic speak for as long as it's happening somewhere else and we can do what we need to do to fuel our interests, i.e. through oil and through trade and all that kind of stuff, then aren't we doing what we're supposed to be doing as a nation, taking care of our own? And that resonated, that conversation, which is probably 20 years old at this point, really resonated with me because we were talking about it, you know, around 9-11 and talking about the failure of that. And he said, can you argue with 50 years of success if your definition of failure is that it didn't come back to bite us in the ass? So that's really interesting. To me, that continues to be interesting insight into how diplomats think about the world. Now, Project for a New American Century uh, carving up Afghanistan uh, in order to lay pipelines. That was the idea around, there were people that floated the idea that we wanted to put massive pipelines through the Middle East and that that would be the most expeditious way to get oil out of uh, parts, uh, out of Iraq and feed them into uh, other parts of Europe. And that these proposals were put together and put forward by um, oil and gas companies. Those proposals were real. The Ben-Gurion Canal project was real in terms of something making it to a blueprint. But I don't think that any of them were actually actionable and made their way into devoted, dedicated policy of the United States. So the Ben-Gurion Canal Project, first of all, building a canal today as opposed to building it when we, you know, when the Suez was created or we built the Panama Canal is so exorbitant and so enormously extravagant in terms of costs and the infrastructure required. Moreover, we don't really need to do that with the way that the world is transitioning towards different types of fuel. So I don't think that that's the subtext there. 
The reason Egypt, in my mind, after putting this series together, is not desirous of taking more Palestinian refugees is because, as we demonstrated, they're not natural allies. These are different people that come from a different part of, of the religion of Islam that have entirely different concepts of who they are as a people. Pan-Arab nationalism sometimes included Egypt and Morocco. Sometimes they didn't. These are Northern African territories that don't have as much in common with, let's say, Turkey, as we tend to think here. So these are different people. They had their own ideas about nation states. And Egypt, early, early on, pulled away from supporting any of the pan-Arab nationalism efforts because they had their own empire that they that they were considering. And they, they considered themselves always, I think, distinct from the other territories that were carved up. And that's why they were the first to gain independence. The other reason that Jordan and Egypt are not interested in taking Palestinian refugees is because economically they are simply incapable of absorbing them. And again, I go back to this. I think I made this point on show notes a few weeks ago where think about the consternation that we have. When we introduced, I think it was something in the order of like 10,000 new migrants that were shipped up from the border into New York City. It has brought New York City to a standstill. The Adams administration, for you know whatever you want to say about uh, how bizarre he is, cannot deal with the influx of, of immigrants coming from the border. They simply can't. So Texas and Florida have made their point. You know, if you want to talk real politic, they've made their point that there is a crisis at the border and we are not capable of resolving it. Again, I go back to the immigration episode and the fact that we have caused this problem by not allowing people to go back and forth like they were able to. That's an entirely different story. But just focus on the part that if if New York City cannot absorb 10,000 additional people from, from the border, imagine now taking 2 million people from Gaza that had homes, had some manner of subsistence. They were able to at least put food on the table, whether it was through international support or there was some employment in, the, in that area. They had an infrastructure, they had water, they had beaches. There was even tourism to a degree if you go back before it was totally locked down. So this is a part of the world where people had lived for generations, had set roots, and they have history, they have family, and they have businesses and all those things and apartments and stuff, right? And now you're going to take two million of them and throw them into Egypt when Egypt is in economic chaos right now. They are experiencing hyperinflation. They are ped basically peddling all around the world for the money to complete these infrastructure projects in these projects that are going nowhere because they've now over-conceptualized them and they don't have the currency fortitude to make these things happen. So they're in a, a total tailspin and, and a deep recession. If you go to Jordan... Jordan, as Professor Khalidi pointed out, Jordan is is basically just a, a, a desert. It's an empire in that it's a monarchy with a police state that has a marginal economy, some tourism, some industry, and some farming, but it's not a robust economy. And it can no more absorb an additional two or three million people from the West Bank, which is what people are suggesting into their economy. And they certainly can't take people from Gaza they can't go to Syria because Syria is still a broken state. 
We they can't go to Lebanon because Lebanon has 98% inflation right or currency devaluation right now and also hyperinflation. Where are these people supposed to go? It doesn't make any sense. So that's to me the reason that Egypt is sort of hostile to this idea. They're not a natural ally. They never wanted to be a part of this thing. They fought the Suez battle years ago and they consider it over. And there is no way that we're going to prop up a million plus people in tent cities in the desert with no functioning infrastructure in the Suez proper. So to me, it's it's a lot more practical than any blueprints or designs that are laid out on paper. Dan H. sent a, a very long and, and thoughtful email with a lot of questions in it. Um, I'm going to tackle a couple of them right now uh, that I think are really pressing and and help us really flesh out this, this series. So uh, he started off saying a very intense ending to the three-part series. Uh, of course, the epilogue is a nice end cap to the story. There are some thoughts, reactions, and questions as well. First one is how do race and racism interact with this story? I've seen some analysis from folks in the U.S. that Israel is acting as a white colonial aggressor against a brown indigenous population. I feel like that's oversimplifying, but I could see some merit in the argument that Jewish closeness to whiteness helped them curry favor with European and American powers pre-1948 compared to their Arab counterparts. All right, let's tackle that in the past and let's tackle that in the present quickly. So in the past, I, I think that was less of the case. And the reason for that is the multiple opportunities that Eastern Europe, Western Europe, and the United States had to absorb the Jewish population that everybody admitted was highly educated, highly capable, set deep roots, had secular-minded attitudes, didn't have a religion where they tried to impose it on other people. Like, really highly functioning parts of society in every place that they set roots for generations, hundreds of years, and sometimes millennia. And they weren't, and and they refused to absorb them. And it wasn't a refugee issue. It was pure anti-Semitism. So I think the reason that so many Jews wound up finding safe haven and harbor in Israel is specifically because the the, the anti-Semitism was on par with any sort of racism and settler, settler colonial mindset that you would find anywhere else in the world. So to me, the origin story of Israel still makes so much sense. So the, I, I, I don't think that that was as much of what it is as, as what we see presently. Now, presently is a little bit of a different story. I do think that there is a notion among Americans again, speaking ethnocentrically again, that Israel is a white colonial state and that the the Arabs in the area are nothing more than tent-dwelling brown people that are intent on, you know, death to America. I, I, I honestly think that that's like the vast majority of people that are in a particular party for sure, but even some crossover among liberal Democrats that I've seen that there is a belief system that the Arab nations are filled with people that are something less than. So I think that we, like we always do, approach it from a little bit of a racist lens. Internal to Israel, I think if you read some Israeli scholars and historians and present-day journalists that are allowed to kind of you know say what they want to say, there is a hierarchy and a structure among Israelis that is very similar to what we would experience in America. For example, the Ethiopian Jews have not had an easy time assimilating in Israel 
and and those divisions are along racial lines. The Arab Israelis are in many ways second-class citizens only because of the laws that we set forward. Uh, that there is structural that there is a structural imbalance there uh, embedded in the legal system and the legal codes against Arab Israelis. But I think that's less to do with racism and more the design of the ethnic national state that is basically just looking to control the area through the ethnic nationalism. But I do think that there is there's a racist quality to how the certainly Palestinian Arabs are, uh, and, and even Christians who, and, you know, Christians are an outlier in this. The, the Christian Arabs are as oppressed in some cases, certainly in, in Jerusalem and East Jerusalem, as uh, uh, the, the Muslim Arabs are. There's so much more at play than just the classic racist lens that we view things through here, and those dynamics are at play over there. But I think that the state of Israel has one function in the way that it sees itself, and that is to make it an almost 100% Jewish state that they would prefer to have Ethiopian Jews in sort of their hierarchical structure over Palestinian Muslim Arabs living within their territory. That that's first and foremost, be Jewish. We don't care where you're from. You could be a Sephardic Jew. You could be an Ashkenazi Jew. You could be Ethiopian Jew. It doesn't make a difference. That's number one. Beneath that, I think that there's some just natural inherent racism with that. But again, it's not it's not monolithic. The the voices that I feel like are not teased out all that all that well are the let's say white Ashkenazi Jews of a socialist minded background that live in the kibbutzim mentality and that keep that history and that vitality of of that uh, of that ancestry alive. Those are the people that I think do not have a, a, a political voice in Israel, and we don't see them surfaced in the dialogue enough. So, so you're saying we need to hear more from the white people. We have to hear more from the socialists. <laughs> That's what I'm getting at. Um, because, again, what I found fascinating about the first two aliyot were that it was a migration of Ashkenazi Jews from what was then the Russian Empire to settle the kibbutzim and and live out a socialist existence. That thread is still very much alive in the Israeli mindset. That is very much a part, I think, of the Israeli DNA, that they see that as kind of fundamental to their being and their roots and who they are, even if they don't act Jews. that way, right? I think it's all Jews, not just Israelis, no? Well, I'm um, so I, I it so I'm saying that there's a disconnect in that the state of Israel acts one way, but still has this perception. It, it's so similar to the United States. Like we behave terribly across the world, but we still see ourselves as freedom fighters and liberators, and you know we're frontier spirit, you know colonial right. people. You know that. Say what you mean. Just a just a just a disconnect that exists. Yeah, I think just tangentially to what Dan's saying. On the ground, there's a weird racist aspect of, of the way people talk about Israel related to the conflict and, and just Jews as well, where people are whitewash the population and just say, you know, Jews are white. It's the same way people say Jews can't be a race, can't be that. So they actually, I feel like a lot of the discourse completely takes out people's identity. So mm -hmm. there is aspects of anti-Semitism 
which it's almost backwards. It's like usually they're being marginalized because they're a person of color. But this time they're like, no, you can't be marginalized because you're white. Right. But it's like all the Sephardic Jews I know look Sephardic. Like Mm -hmm. that's just what they look like. Yes. I look Ashkenazi, you know, like I look Eastern European. They don't. So I don't know. That's just another weird. It's there's so many layers and angles to it. Totally. Totally. And, And we tend to just minimize it. I think that most Americans see Israelis as white Ashkenazi Jews that, you know, are, hey, I, I know a bunch just like that. Like Israel, that that's us in the Middle East. It's so weird. I mean, I have a, just maybe being Jewish and know, like I know people from Israel here and there over my the course of my life. And like, I, I think I usually think the opposite. I usually think they're yeah. like, they're like, oh, this is the, these are the brown Jews. Right. I don't know where they're from, so I mm-hmm. forgive my generalization. But like, yeah, Israel no, is that's that's real talk. That's brown, how people see they're it. the brown part of the Jews, and the white Jews live here, like right. for the most part. So uh, <laughs> that's what I always thought. But you know, if we look at Netanyahu, who's very Americanized and can turn his American on in you know in an instant, you know, we look at you know maybe Golda Meir. We look at uh, some of the, some of the more notable figures throughout history. That that's our window into what's going on in Israel. And it's like, oh, those people—they're just like me. But I think for a lot of the country that does not have a densely that don't have you know densely uh, populated Jewish areas uh, like New York or California or some of the some of the other uh, cities, they they don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. They just don't know what it is. And so they they see with their eyes and they see what they want to perceive and they see what's reflected back to them through the Western media and. I think it's just like, oh, that's those are our people, but over there. But I, I think it was in the epilogue where I pointed out that like the reason that black Americans in particular have been on this for since when we covered the the black and Jewish divide story since Kwame Ture is they see it as settler colonialism. They're like, I, I, that's familiar to me. I, I know what this is. They see it as less like in all the the shades of color that are that are represented in the Middle East, and they just see it as imperial, dominant, majority white state making life difficult for brown people. That's it, you know. So I think that that's why this election cycle is going to shape up a little bit differently, because I think Democrats are are looking to say like, okay, man, this is like it's eleven months away. There's no way we're still talking about this in 11 months, but this is going to resonate with with black and brown Americans who find this eerily, eerily familiar. Yeah. I was going to say, I wonder, I mean, you'd have to do like scholarship on this, but how much of people who are aligned with us or who want to be aligned with us, how much thought and grooming and... I don't know what, what other word, but go into political selection. So, like, it's not in Israel's best interest to put, like, a super Israeli person forward as their leader if they want to be aligned with America. I'm positing. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering how much of that, like, over the years is strategy and how much has become just, like, the inclination. Do you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? The the super Israeli prime ministers of the past don't last all that long. Like, did you see Ehud Barak trip up? Not trip up, but did you see the the sort of recent scandal? You're not going to see him on TV anymore. Let's just say that. So Ehud Barak, former prime minister of Israel in the early 2000s, I think, for like a cup of coffee. 
uh, went on Christian Amanpour's show and she was pressing him on the uh, the hospital. I did see this. Yeah. And uh, so long story short is he's like, well, I remember when we were building stuff over there, like we we, we built the, the secure bunker beneath the hospital. Um, so it's entirely possible they were using that as a command center. And she was like, um, did, she literally said, did you just misspeak? And he's like, no, we built that. We built, that's when we were in charge of Gaza. We built that hospital. We built the infrastructure. You need a secure operating room and you're dealing in very tight quarters. So back then we would build out additional infrastructure below the ground. So yeah, I'm sure they were using it as a command center. And he was saying it like, yeah, there's a command center. And she's like, so that's how you knew there was a bunker there? And then she just kind of moved on from it. But I think, you know, it caught a lot of people off guard that, you know, this point being, you're not going to see him again. And they're going to put, you know, people on the Western media that, you know, look like us, talk like us. And, you know, in a, in a very sort of white splainy sort of way. Right. To talk about the conflict. I just wonder. Yeah. So I wonder it's more of a philosophical question. I wonder how much over time, like the natural ebbs and flows mm -hmm. and how that works now. Because, in Israeli know, politics, like in, the people that wind up getting elected over there, you mean? Like, do they subconsciously yes. think what's going to look good to us? Like, not the people, but like, you know, the machinations behind the scene of like, who who are mm. the up and coming political people who make it on the circuit? Right. You know, right. it's like politicians don't usually pop up out of nowhere. Our system is different. They're cultivated. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wonder how much and not just in Israel, but in other countries that are allied with us, like you know what does that look like to them of like who's this who's the whitest fucking person <laughs> so all these white people agree with us um much deeper question and <laughs> yeah. i think there's a lot of modern historical uh examples that would uh that would prop up that idea yeah. without a doubt it could be like a causation correlation thing mm -hmm. where i probably could figure it out yeah and i could probably like disprove it also but there has to be something. Yes. Human nature. Um, uh, where did the Irgun and Haganah military weapons and training come from in the lead up to 1948? Yeah, from what, what I understand, it was predominantly France and uh, England. Further down, he says, I'm trying to understand the Israeli strategy in the region and why harsher tactics weren't employed to meet their goals. I should note I don't agree or align with this plan, but here's my take. It seems clear the Israeli government, since its founding, would prefer the Palestinians simply go away, cede their territory... And then Israel can ensure its security with peace and order in the other Arab nations in the region. Yes? Yes, I would concur with that. To date, Israeli tactics seem like making life unbearable in the occupied territories to push people out slowly, steadily displacing Palestinians over time, and responding to uprisings with large show of force to kill Palestinians and force them out back. While they've made gains toward the overall goal, they haven't been successful in accomplishing it in seven, 75 years. Why not employ more aggressive options? There's a lot there's a lot to unpack in in that question and I think that it is actually perfectly encapsulated in the ebb and flow of Israeli politics over the last, you know, let's say I'll say since since well no, I'll say since 1948. I think every leader with the exception I guess of maybe Ehud Barak and Yitzhak Rabin have been more inclined to, to adhere to the original Zionist philosophy that was laid out by Chaim Weizmann and Zeb Jabotinsky and, and Herzl, which was slow, steady, 
will take a take over a bit by bit until it just becomes obvious that that people need to find another place or just acquiesce entirely to being a minority. The problem is people have babies and populations grow and they expand and uh, it the numbers just simply didn't work out. Let me give you a terrible, terrible parallel of both the Russian pogroms and the uh, the Nazi policy of trying to get Jews out of the Russian Empire and then out of what became the expanded German Empire. They all came up against the harsh reality that you cannot simply push people out quickly. It's very, very difficult to move masses of people around. So the pogroms made it very difficult to live so the diaspora moved all around the world. But that happened over, oh God, half a century, right? The Germans tried to do it in incredibly short time frame, which is why they eventually just came up with the final solution. Because nobody else seemed to be willing to stop them. And among all of the people that they were fighting, we already knew... We, I mean, we knew from the history and the lead up to the Holocaust that nobody was willing to take the Jews in. So they said, okay, we're just going to deal with this and do this. So what you're suggesting here is why didn't the, why didn't Israel just simply go all Holocaust on the Palestinian people if the goal was always to have the territory? That gets into the question of, is that really the Israeli goal? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Netanyahu said as much. At the UN, that's that famous speech now where he held up a map of the Middle East and Israel was the whole of Israel and Palestine. And he said, this is what I'm going for. So he's, he didn't just like infer it. He drew a fucking picture of it and said, this is all ours and we'll get there. And every time somebody tries to take that away from us or push back on it, we are going to respond asymmetrically with a shit ton of force until people just figure out that this is no longer a safe place for them. Why can't they go just full out blitz and and have more devastating? Because I do think that the world in this modern world is way too sensitive to that type of mass atrocity. I mean, listen, if we talk about it on scale, let's say there's 14, 15,000 Palestinians now that have been killed in the response to October 7th, right? That is a lot of human beings. And it's still nothing compared to what we did in Iraq. I keep coming back to that example, but I mean, just think about the sheer human consequence and devastation that we wrought on that area. It is nothing compared to the genocide that is occurring today in, in South Sudan. It's nothing compared to the civil war and what Bashar al-Assad did in uh, his own country in Syria. You know, it's nothing compared to what Khmer Rouge did. It's nothing compared to what uh, what China did in, in their great displacements. Like, on the scale of atrocities, I think it's, I mean, it's a weird thing to say, but I think it's a little harder to get away with that type of behavior today. And I think that 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 would send the world into a complete fucking tailspin. Well, because war is okay, but Holocaust is not okay. That's right. And that's why they, listen, there's a lot of people out there that are suggesting that Israel 
may have backed its defenses off on purpose that had intelligence. How could Israel not have had the intelligence that Hamas was planning something and that this was the catalyzing moment they need? That's conspiratorial on the level of suggesting that Project for a New American Century helped orchestrate 9-11. But you can look at it in the in the rear view and say, maybe it wasn't planned, but it was certainly opportunistic. So Israel is trying to paint this as a symmetrical war. Hamas brought this to our territory. We must respond in kind until we eliminate Hamas. And you heard what that general said, what I was responding to on Anderson Cooper's uh, show, where he had no follow-up question to the where the general said, everyone in Gaza is Hamas because they voted for him, even if they're you know a child that wasn't alive when the vote took place, right? There's so many different sides to this thing, but I, I, I think that if you're in the Israeli intelligence apparatus and the political apparatus, and you're looking back at the map of Israel-Palestine over the last 50 years, you're saying, you know, we're doing a pretty good job. We already have a quarter of the West Bank. It's a third of the West Bank, but a quarter of it has been, you know, settled by Israelis. So it's impossible to, to take us out of here. And, you know, two, one two, three more generations, if we're patient and we pursue the same tactics and we back off just when the world starts to get upset at at us, uh, you know, we're going to have it all anyway. So what's the big deal? Then you have the new right wing government in Israel that is looking to eradicate all Palestinians and they are not patient. So What's happening over what's happening in Israel is a is an awakening and a realization among the Israelis because this is the conversations that they're having on their own media outlets and these are the demonstrations that are taking place in the streets that people are not in fit the people in Israel are not in favor of annihilating Palestinians they're simply not but this hard right government is is that familiar to anybody in the United States. This isn't about Israelis or Jews being evil and not learning lessons of the Holocaust and what you know brought them to Israel in the beginning. This is the far-right ideology, imperial ideology that kowtows to capitalism, that sees the death and dismemberment and destruction of whole peoples and cities and territories and systems as subservient to their ultimate goals of total control and domination. It's a worldview that has infected the Likud and the far-right uh, politicians that they have had to align with in order to maintain control of the government. It's what we're fighting here in the United States with a fascist who wants to take control of the government again, who said out loud, Donald Trump did, that he will visit revenge upon all of the people who opposed him while he was out of office and got him out of office, that he will imprison people and uh, and will use every every you know available tactic of the presidency to go after and and you know hunt down people that that opposed him. This is just pure fascism and it's okay to say that, but a lot of American Jews cannot bring themselves to level that type of critique against the Israeli government out of fear that we all have to understand. This is the homeland for a Jewish people that has been persecuted throughout all of history. 
what makes this so utterly complex and fascinating. If you had no emotional connection to it and you were just studying Earthlings, you would look at this situation and being like, wow, that's really fucking tangled. Why don't we get down to Old Turk? Did what I say before about politicians sound really ethnocentric? <laughs> now I'm going in my head. I was like, was it clear that I wasn't endorsing that? <laughs> yes, uh, yes, it was very clear. And 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 I'm only I'm only hesitating because there are I think specific examples of political machines that have surfaced candidates that would be in their estimation America friendly. Right. No question. Okay. That's what I was like saying, like, it's people doing it, not like we should all, we don't want your foreigners. We, right. <laughs> it was just it's like, wow, that might have sounded really ignorant no, when I it thought did, it over in my head. Okay. Not at all. In fact, it's amazing how few elections around the world actually reflect the will of the people and why when those happen, it's so like awesome and stunning to us. Right. And sometimes horrifying. Witness Argentina. Holy fucking shit. This guy is a stone cold lunatic. Yeah, I mean, all the Russians who elected Putin. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, yeah. yes. You will elect me again. And again. Yes. <laughs> uh, all right, so Old Turk said, I want to say that your Palestine series is the best contextualization of history and issues regarding the plot of land that I've ever seen or heard. Thank you for boiling down the source material to this highly consumable format. So I put that in there as a palate cleanser to Josh, who's mad at you. Thank you, Old Turk. I appreciate that. Um, Josh S., as the counterpoint said, I was disappointed with your Palestinian series. After a decent run through of largely accurate background for both the Jewish and Arab people of the region, your decision to choose Rashid Khalidi as your one and only phone a friend and filter your own epilogue through the lens of what he refers to as colonialism and ethnic cleansing and then sprinkle in a dance around the definition of genocide seemed to me one-sided and lazy especially in light of the fact that the Arab population within Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank has increased since 1948, right? While some of the criticisms you make of Israel are valid, I expected better of you than a conclusion of that's what you get. Okay. Um, just so it doesn't get lost in the mix here, that's what you get. The, the other half of that sentence is, is not the same as that's what you deserve. That's what you get is a reflection of what I believe is a settler colonial situation in Israel. I think I was pretty balanced in selecting the human rights organizations that agreed with it or that actually called it that and sourcing them specifically. Choosing Rashid Khalidi as the one and only phone a friend is not the only person I reached out to, by the way, uh, but is the one that responded. And I actually thought that in the phone a friend, he was incredibly sensitive to the people of Israel and the Jews of Israel and the history between the people. Don't forget, it's his work primarily that I sourced in the first two episodes purposely to demonstrate that there is a natural fraternal bond between the people of this region irrespective of their religion. And what got lost along the way was imperialism and that imperialism has shown in the new, very recent development of settler colonial attitudes by the Likud party. So again, 
Josh, um, I am singling out the Likud wing of the Israeli political apparatus as the bad guy in this scenario, and I do believe that to be the case. Just like I believe that the evangelical strain of the Republican Party and the neocons that kind of came before them and gave birth to them, the ultra-libertarian wing of the Republican Party that has now co-opted the entire party. That's weird amalgamation of those three entities, libertarians, neocons, and evangelicals have morphed into this blob that is now identified as the Republican Party. That it, it's, it's, They cannot extract that ideology from the political party. That's what I'm suggesting has happened and infected the political body in Israel in the form of the Likud party that is now just has to, it, they've set their own, they've set the table and they have to dine at it now. It's who they are. And it's the only way that they're going to maintain power and control. But I believe that it is distinct from a lot of the feelings that uh, that Israelis themselves have about how they want to see their future. And what I loved about Khalidi is that is when he said, for example, I lived there. You used to be able to, you could have West Bank license plates and go to the beach in Israel. We used to be able to travel freely. There was full employment at one point in the West Bank and in these occupied territories, but it was the far right surge of the Islamist organizations at the same time as the far right surge of the of the Likud party that set these areas up in opposition. Now, if we broaden our scope here, Josh, and look at the Middle East in its entirety, and now let's say, you know, a third of Africa and a pretty significant chunk of Southeast Asia. If we zoom out, we look at these countries that have also become more extreme militant theocracies, I, you can see a dangerous pattern emerging. We've got the United States getting increasingly theocratic with the evangelicals still carrying way too much sway in our party. You've got an increasingly far-right vision of ethno-nationalism uh, in, in embodying the Likud party in this very, very tiny sliver of the world, surrounded by far-right extreme ideologies in all of these Middle Eastern states. It's a dangerous, toxic mix. One thing I did not, again, I put this on myself here, tease out enough, even though I said to Professor Khalidi that there are only 3,500 Jews left in predominantly Muslim countries. That's for a reason. It's because they're not safe there either. And we can take on the Ayatollahs in Iran, and we can take on the fact that LGBTQ communities are not safe in these predominantly Muslim theocratic-run nations. Uh, and we can also find examples where they are. We can find examples where women are safe and secure and have a place in states that are dominated by the, the religion of Islam, but are not run by uh, Islamic theocracies. So again, it's balanced, it's nuanced, but my conclusion, irrespective of whether I talk to Professor Khalidi or not, but drawing on the new historians, Avi Shlaim, uh, reading Elon Poppy, reading Edward Said, reading as, as many influences as I could, and then just using my own logic 
uh, you know, and, and my own experience as somebody who looks at American settler colonial behavior and the imperial settler colonial behavior of the of the allied powers coming out of World War II, it's very easy to look at, at what's going on in Israel and, and draw the same conclusion. I don't think that's racist. I don't think it's anti-Semitic and I don't think it's off point. Um, but I understand why you might think that the conclusion was one-sided. Hopefully the first three parts of the series though, did it enough justice to show you that I was trying to be expansive. And also you're only one person. You can only really have one side. True. Eventually it's gonna filter. True. Might I also say though, that as an American, I am very concerned for the Jewish population in the United States. That I think that the rise of anti-Semitism is not just a media play, that it is very, very real. Because just like people can't unpack the nuances of what's happening there, there are people in this country that aren't going to be able to unpack the nuances of what it means to be a Jew in the world and how that relates to this particular conflict. I saw um, one of my best friends the other night, and he was proudly displaying Judaic jewelry. And he, he's like, no, I'm putting it all on, and I want it all out there, and I want anybody that I run into to know that I'm proudly Jewish. And I felt so weird. I love him. I said, I felt weird saying to him, I was like, you know, brother, can you just do me a favor and just tuck that shit in for a little while? Like maybe, maybe you just sort of like, just sort of hide. He's like, I'm not going to fucking hide. I'm proudly Jewish. And he lives in an area that that's okay, you know, but am I concerned for my family? Fuck yeah. Am I concerned for my, you know, for my very dear friend? Am I concerned for you? A hundred percent. I don't, like this never ends well. But we're talking about a political situation and a wartime conflict. And in that, I find it very easy to distinguish between my feelings for people and individuals and those that I love and and what's happening politically. And it's so funny to me that, You can criticize America as an American, but as an American, you cannot criticize Israel to a Jewish American. But you could go to Israel and criticize the government. Some Jewish Americans. Some Jewish Americans, yeah. Give my generation more credit. Yeah, and older people that filled Grand Central Station. You know, those weren't just all young people. There were older Jewish activists that remember the civil rights movement and and remember what it was like to be in lockstep with the right side of history. And those are the people that filled Grand Central Station, which I, you know, I think was still wonderful. So anyway. I think what you're saying about being concerned for, for people, but also, I don't know how you phrased it, taking an interest in the politics or being interested in the politics is exactly what you're saying on the flip side of like, Israeli people don't want to destroy and demolish Palestinian people. I mean, I don't know. I can't speak for Palestinian people or Israeli people, but I think probably like the people on the ground are not probably don't want each other to die. And it's just what you're saying. It's like it's the government. So it's like I think maybe I'm generalizing. Jews are maybe sensitive. (laughs) This is so I mean, it's like the most generalized and simplistic take. They're sensitive when you critique Israel because it feels like they're critiquing the place and the idea, Mm -hmm. not would but really it's like no no it's not it's not the idea of Jewish people having a safe place it's just what's happening 
Yeah. So I think that is like it puts up the first wall of like, no, you're you're either you're anti-Semitic mm-hmm. or you're just like, I can't fucking talk to you because no, this is our place, whatever. And it's it's almost like it's not nationalism, but what would you call that? Pride or yeah, that makes it just so uh like impermeable to criticism for people who are like who are like that obviously people who believe in ethnic cleansing and genocide aside Mm because those people are just i don't know unwell (laughs) to to put it lightly but yeah i I think that's what makes it so difficult and yeah the sentiment on the ground is like anti-semitism is rising and i mean there was Palestinian, those Palestinian boys who were shot in either Vermont. day in Vermont, of yeah. all fucking places. Yeah. So it's like, I it just like after 9-11, like you talked about, after anything happens that remotely involves a brown person, you know, hate crimes. And there's a lot of brown people, like different races. Yep. They're not all the same. Yep. So, you know, that I'm worried for like for those people too. Absolutely. And I don't mean to those people, but those communities. So it, it's just, it's scary on all sides. So it's like, it's what the effect of something we can't as citizens control to people who we don't want to harm by governments who don't give a shit. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Very well said. Very well said. Well, Knudsen. Knudsen. So we've got two two points from Knudsen. One about the episode and then we will, I'll I'll pause and you can reflect and then we'll pivot into the general feedback. So it'll take us to the to some lighter stuff. And then we'll get dark again, don't worry. Okay. Um, so on the Palestine series, a hearty thank you. The history was enlightening and valuable in both my understanding of the region's past and present. I was especially wowed by the roots of the fiction of there were nothing but nomadic Bedouin living there before Jews began to do a reverse diaspora and that a return to the Holy Land was not always the only option considered. Seeing around the web all sorts of mis and disinformation based on these two things alone has gotten me into a couple of unique conversations even booted me from a group that the moderator is a right-wing Likud Zionist. Uh, an idea I'd like to explore more is the idea of being Judaist but not Zionist. I've seen definitions of Judaist that say it is one who is either a supporter or practitioner of the religion, and others that say it is only practitioners. I've also seen it used to mean a supporter of Jewish people, regardless of practicing the faith or not, while not being a Zionist, a supporter of the state of Israel as a nation for Jews by Jews, at the exclusion of others as the Likud party and other right-wing Israelis have been pushing for, and enacting through force and other means. The nuance of language being important, I find this question to be pretty top of the list for exploration. One thing that I found fascinating along the way was understanding the differences in the Orthodox communities. Mm. So the Orthodox community in the United States, believing that Jews were intended by God to be in, and not not all Orthodox, many of the Orthodox community saying that Jews were intended to live in diaspora so that they could actually spread the word of God to the Goy. And uh, but then you have hardliner Orthodox Jews in Israel that are kind of aligned with the Herzl side of, of Zionism, and then others that are vehemently opposed to the state of Israel as well. And you know, they're, the Orthodox population is sometimes brutalized by the secular sort of like a street military of, of the Likud party. I mean, it's it's wild to see. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many videos I've seen of, of Orthodox Jews be, just being clubbed and beaten by Israeli, by IDF soldiers. So I, I don't pretend to know any of those distinctions or differences. Just like I was, the reason I had I got a grasp of what evangelicals believed and the passages of the Bible that they were relying upon to 
kind of explain the rapture and their view of being pro-Israel, I called you know one of my other best friends who's a pastor, and I said, "Can you please unpack this for me?" Because I couldn't. How worldly you are! Look, yeah, I know. Yeah, but this is how lost I was coming into this dialogue. <laughs> and uh, so he came. We spent the night together at at, at, our, at my house. Hey now, um, he came over and and actually over a bottle of wine. Uh, this he, is getting I, more and more romantic by the minute. I had a. Uh, my wife was there. So. Okay. Um, hey. So it was the thruple. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, you know, I, I basically went to, to Bible study for the night with him and he explained a lot of the nuances. And what, what I found really fascinating was he was sort of unpacking a lot of the discussions that were happening and the differences between what's going on in the black church and then the differences what's going on in a lot of the, the white Protestant churches and how that differs with the Catholic church right now and how it all differs from the evangelical strain. And they're they're really struggling with you know where to sit on this particular issue, and they're also really struggling with what their role is in the future of the American democracy. So I had a, I mean an amazing discourse with him, but it, he's the one that explained to me this whole concept of the rapture and you know deliverance of you know that requires Jews to return to Israel before that uh, Christians can be taken away. I mean it's all it's all so fucking bizarre to me, but it just goes to show that like. To be a Judaist, but also to be somebody who defends the secular, ethnic secular notion of a state that is safe harbor for Jews doesn't necessarily mean that it is exclusive to Jews. It could just be predominantly Jewish. It could be a democracy. That's why I teased out Moshe McCover at the end of the episode saying that, like, everybody, I have an answer for this. And it it's a federation of territories that are democratic, that are principally democratic, but socialist in nature in that the power is returned to the people, not just for self-determination along territorial lines and geographic boundaries, but upon economic measures that really help support the lower uh, classes. So there are always viewpoints out there that were just so diminished over time and, and were never allowed to really be surfaced or taken seriously. And, and Machover, you know, did that for me as well. But I don't know that I'm the one to really further explore being a Judaist versus a Zionist or, but it would certainly be good fodder for a phone a friend. Maybe it's time to get the um, straight white American Jesus folks back on the, back on the line. Maybe like a Jewish person instead. Are they? Uh, oh no, they're former evangelicals, both of them, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's. I'm sure they know things, but like, so you talk to a Jew. <laughs> yeah, well, one, I, I, I wasn't able to uh, seal the deal yet on one of my Jewish friends that I think would would give a lot of. She's very busy right now, so we'll we'll see if we can get it. Trying not to find a a mouthpiece for the state is important to me. So, you know, uh, digging into academia and finding a great Jewish historian, I think is, if anybody has any suggestions for somebody that I can speak to, I think that would be great. I'm, I mean, I feel like if you ask the professor, he might know people who are, like, who's his counterpart yeah. without being pro-Israel? You know, who's doing the scholarship of the people and the history and whatever, more words, you know? Mm -hmm. So he might know. Yeah, yeah. And again, if there's anybody out, out there that you would love for me to reach out to, I'm, you know, I'm game. So let me know. So I'm actually going to skip Knudsen and come back to him when we do Facebook. So you read P. Slippery. All right. P. Slippery. Max, you've only broken your cool, calm demeanor a few times over the life of the pod. And I got to tell you, I absolutely love it. There's been a few more. <laughs> just not out. <laughs> yeah. They, they don't make it to the final yeah. cut. Um, 
There's a, I think there's one whole episode that 99 just shit canned. I do think that's true. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. It, I think so. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you for, for that. the best. Yeah. <laughs> um, he said the N word. I'm just kidding. No, God. I, I, just, I didn't want to spread that rumor. Uh, you let us all hear just the sheer amount of vitriol you have for Anderson Cooper. I know that keeping a level head throughout these shows will get the point across in a way that is most likely well-received instead of not. But man, I wish you'd let Angry Max through more often. Go ahead. Yes. Feel the hate. But he does you. such a good job hosting New Year's with Andy Cohen. Yes, he does. What am I supposed to do now? I'm so... Well, I said everything I wanted to say about that particular Anderson Cooper moment. But um, Is he canceled? No, not at all. Okay. Not even close. Not even close. I just don't understand... Well, I didn't know if you were personally canceling. No, no, no. I mean, I I don't have anything against a lot of the mainstream mouthpieces. It's more like they're institutions that I have a problem with. I know that these people are just careerists and Anderson Cooper's done some amazing work in the past. I I told you the one mainstream person that I that I absolutely love is Cristiano Ronaldo and definitely Geraldo Rivera. I mean, Geraldo Rivera, when he retired, is a great example came out when he was kicked out of Fox, came out and said, here's all the reasons that Fox has been shitty for the last 20 years. Well, where were you when you were, you know, for the last 20 years? He was collecting a paycheck. So a lot of these people are just collecting a paycheck. He did really early good journalism, and then he just became a person. Yeah. that one story. It all turned. It all turned with uh, Al Capone's vault. That's over my head. Oh, wow. I'm just talking to, like, the lifetime of How about that on fuckers? I don't Al Capone's vault? It was it was when Geraldo turned into a national joke. It happened in like overnight. Oh, yeah, he was gonna open Al Capone's vault, and there was nothing in it, and he did it live on time. Oh. He took such a risk and did it live. It was like That's again, sad pre-internet, pre all these fucking ten channels, and it was like this big event that they hyped for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, and they opened a vault, and there was nothing there, and it just it's, and it so that just became like um, you know basically a metaphor for wow. there's no there there for huh. years, yeah. Anyway, man. All right. So we've spent a lot of time already here. So I tell you what, we're going to take a few of these because we did miss a couple. Um, We're going to take a few of these comments and work them into the next uh, show notes. So for now, why don't we just get down to coffee donations and um, also some new reviews? Yes. So coffee, Kenny is now a member. Yay. Thank you for contributing to my political growth. I always felt alienated by American politics and the culture surrounding capitalism. I've been turning many of my friends towards your podcast and YouTube to better explain many of my political thoughts and feelings. Many aha moments keep up the good work. Thank you. And Nurse Diane is also now a member. So much intelligent, well-researched information. You're making me smarter. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you, Nurse Diane. Someone is a member. Thank you to that person. Maybe you know who you are. And uh, Maria from PR bought a coffee to celebrate the surprise of having the professor on the phone a friend. And she's very excited to listen. I hope she has and sends in her feedback. Maria, I hope you're doing well. You got, what do you think this is? Mike Hamabd. Hamabd. No, I copied this directly. It's not a typo on my part. Mike H. Mike H is now a member. I've learned so much. Keep going, please. (laughs) Curiouser bought five coffees, enjoying all the learning, doing my best to catch up. Will Watkins the fourth. Will hold for it. I am William Wallace. Bought a coffee saying just a quickie coffee hit to let you know I'm getting a lot out of the Palestine series. And Rob W1836 is now a member. I'm a supporting member of two public radio stations and realized I haven't listened to either of them since I discovered this podcast a couple of months ago. Wow. 
So it's time I started supporting. Thank you so much, Rob W. We appreciate that. <laughs> Rob said, how else is classical music going to survive if they're not supporting? <laughs> it's a great question. Uh, and Nathan Second is back. Whoa! And Nathan Surst has his counterpart again. Nathan Surst and Nathan Second Is there reunited. a Nathan Surd out there? Hello? Hello? It's got to be someone. Come on, Nathan Surd. Where are you? If your name is like Nathan, you can <laughs> count. <laughs> And we had uh, a couple of reviews as well. What did I just say? We had a couple of reviews as well. D Programmer said, Max99 and Manny provide an approachable, light-touch, progressive presentation style, all the while undergirded by detailed, granular information. I find myself learning something new about topics I thought I already had intimate knowledge of, always with an opinion, but never biased. I weight each episode keenly. Damn. That's that's one for the wall. I know. And then last 48, extremely well-researched episodes and some of the most important socio-political issues of our time. Max is both entertaining and informative. He can really hone in on the essence while giving the listener contextual details that we would otherwise have to take a semester graduate course at a university to obtain. Listen and support UNFTR. Wow. I know. Pretty awesome. Who's just great. Where are, they, where are they coming from? That's so nice. Austin T. said, my go-to source of honest and well-researched and thought-out information about the world events. Deprogrammer, last 48, Austin T. Thank you for the reviews. They're so very critical to helping us get found by the algorithms. So thanks for doing that, everybody. Thank you for everybody that became a member during our fall fund friend and hell-raising period. Fall's not over. It's not. It's not. It keeps going. As far as I'm concerned, it never ends. It's always the fall, and we're always raising. So uh, we got a lot of stuff to get to. All of your support is extremely meaningful at this period in time while we continue to build out our infrastructure here and um that's it so lighter touch this weekend with a quickie coming up and uh some other cool topics before the end of the year a couple other phone of friends hopefully and uh and then man we're we're getting after it we're getting close here yeah remember in the probably the next two weeks to make sure it's here in time visit unftr.com slash holiday to grab some holiday merch use code milton 23 bookshop.org is probably doing a bunch of sales shipping stuff 10% off, blah, 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 Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa. <laughs> All so the things. Follow them. Follow, I, I like to post on the stories on our Instagram when they uh, do a sale. So you can use that to uh, buy books from us. And um, hey, if you get your Spotify wrapped back and we're in your top podcast, make sure to send me a screenshot. Yeah. I like to post those too. Neat. Yeah. Fun. All right. Thanks, everybody. Catch you, uh, catch you next week. Bye.